I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and writer, programmer, and curator Carolyn Morissette. In early 1973, her name was Coffee and Chilcremia. The very next year, she was Foxy Brown. The year after that, she was Sheba Baby, and decades later, she would be Jackie Brown. Pam Greer's career and the title characters she's played are vital to movie history. Now, today we're going to look at two of her lesser discussed but just as important movies, Black Mama, White Mama, and Scream, Blackula Scream. But before we do that, let's talk a bit about Ms. Greer's work in general. Carolyn, I know you are a fan. You call her my Gemini twin, which I absolutely love. (laughs) Now, where would you recommend people start with her work? Because it's a pretty wide oeuvre. Well... Yeah, and she is my Gemini twin. Her birthday is a day after mine. And <laughs> actually, in one of her films, this is, I think it's Sheba Baby. She's like in the hot tub with somebody and she's like, well, you know, I love animals and I'm a Gemini. And I'm like, yes, you are a Gemini. I love you so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, if I was thinking about this and I was like, where would I get people to start? So I've got three films. Okay, mm. so... I would recommend Coffee because yeah. A, the song. Um, sure. You can't be like that song. Sometimes I would, in the before times, I would listen to that soundtrack on my way to work. And yeah. it would just make me feel like punching people <laughs> out. But anyway. <laughs> so, I got to say, 1973 is the year of like the best theme songs, yes. right? Like the, you have the Exorcist iconic theme song. Sure. Uh, we've covered 70s porn here. And uh, <laughs> yeah. a number of those pornography <laughs> films have their own theme yeah. songs. Like I cannot. Linda November, man, for the win. I cannot recommend this enough. Yeah. Theme like, songs. Let's get back to it. Song. Yeah, it's a great song. <laughs> and I don't know. I just She's just like just. You know, she's like the queen of vigilantism. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, then I would go to, I was, I, this was a blind spot for me, but I, you know, just kind of watching all her work. Um, Friday Foster's Bonkers. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's getting a re-release now. That's getting updated. Oh, is it? It's Bonkers. Yeah. And like she, there's a car chase with a hearse. Like, yeah. <laughs> back end heavy car, car chase yeah, i'm into like, it let's do it what and i know she liked doing her stunts i'm pretty sure she didn't really she probably didn't drive that hearse but that's nuts like yeah. she steals yeah. a hearse and it's so it's like so high camp it's ridiculous that it's a weird one too because it's like it's a pretty studio movie even though yeah. it's like all the exploitation trapping so i feel like i feel like people don't respect it as much because it's a little less grimy but it's fun yeah. And, it's fun, yeah. and because Eartha Kitt's in it, then it mm-hmm. made me feel like um, almost like it was a, an episode of Batman. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it kind of <laughs> totally. has that studio feel well, to it. Yeah, it's a comic strip too. I think, like, it's yeah, like based it was on a comic, a comic book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so there's that one, and then I would round it out with Jackie Brown because Ooh. oh, oh yes. my god, she's so brilliant <laughs> in that film, and I, I think that's one, like, probably my favorite Tarantino mm. film. Yeah. 
I'm with you. Yeah. And yeah. although every every other Tarantino fanboy would tell us we're wrong because of that's course. everybody's least favorite one, but it's my favorite. Too, I think Carol people are coming stunning. around to it now, yeah. you know, and, and I think it's the general consensus, right? Even if you don't like Tarantino, Jackie Brown is kind of the one that everyone agrees is good. It's the one yeah. where he's the most well-behaved, I think. Like, yeah, where sure. he, yes. He's not a fanboy. He's like a film. This is where he shows that he's a filmmaker and that mm. he can... And, you know, she's an older woman and she's beautiful and there's an older man. Like, it's just like a... a Her and know. Robert Foster are sexy as fuck yeah. in that movie. Like, if you want, like, older people chemistry, yes. that is, like, kablamo. Yeah. yeah, and wasn't there... There was something on the internet where, like, what, what couple do you wish would have gotten together? And I'm like, mm. those two, you know? <laughs> Robert yeah. Forster and um, Pam Greer and Jackie Brown. Like, those yeah. two I would have loved. Carolyn, I didn't even realize this. I have a thing where I love um romantic comedies where they don't end up together like timer mm. is one of my favorite things ever i love i love ones and i did not realize that's part of the reason why i love jackie oh, brown so okay. much because they don't end up together yeah like, spoiler alert if you uh, haven't seen jackie brown yeah um i do have to guiltily say that jackie brown actually was my entry point into pam greer because like when that came out is when i was first starting to kind of know and um of course tarantino's known for his stunt casting right mm -hmm. so as he was sort of writing it it was like a pam greer type a pam greer type and hey what's pam greer doing let's just cast pam greer yeah. right the history that mm -hmm. comes along with pam greer when you watch her in that role and everything she's bringing to it mm -hmm. yeah. yeah for sure and i think my entry <laughs> so i used to be a makeup artist I used to work at a counter and I work with some really um, crazy gals who are still my friends, like, to this day. <laughs> and one of my friends was like, hey, let's do a remake of a Pam Greer movie. <laughs> oh. And so she had it all set out. She's like, you're going to play her. And this is when I was young and spry. And she's like, we'll do it. And because we loved all the iconic photos of her with her fro and, like, the, the shirt tied. And, like, oh, she's just so beautiful and so charismatic. And I think that's when it, and then after that, we were talking about her and I'm like, you know, I think I've only seen like one or two of her movies. So then I started to like, when Suspect Video was open, I would like, mm. oh, you know, go get my Pam Greer fix. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cam, do you want to get a little bit into where she kind of originated and sure. how, they, how she was discovered? She's got a great Hollywood discovery Yeah, she story. does. Uh, Jack Hill. I mean, I think we're researching 1973 as we talk about, I think a thing I was very interested in was... Uh, I guess I always wrote off the black exploitation era as a bunch of white guys just making money who did not give a shit. Uh, and when you hear them talk, it's like, oh, actually, these guys cared. I guess it makes sense that if you're a white guy making a film starring black people, you probably cared a bit about black power and black liberation and these actors. And Jack Hill is somebody like that. He's uh, kind of known as like a weird kingmaker of actors. I didn't realize he he discovered Sid Haig, uh, which makes sense in Spider Baby. But he also discovered Ellen Burstyn, which I didn't know. Hmm. Uh, and so he kind of considered himself a guy who likes to look at unknowns. Uh, and I guess he had an audition. I think it was for The Big Bird cage uh and pam greer came in and he immediately was like this woman is so powerful i guess is what he said like he said she could just command a room uh and look like she would take no shit <laughs> in a way that he was like <laughs> i love you uh and immediately was like rewrote the film to have a black lead uh and then he continued on to be like i'm gonna write movies for you because i think you're good and that's coffee is their movie this year um so yeah she came she's kind of an interesting lady who just kind of like uh, she was at the time very uh, tired of trying to act. Uh, she said that she was mostly offered, you know, the usual servant 
slave roles, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and she was considering going back to school uh, before she got these <laughs> Filipino exploitation movies, which got her in, I guess. Uh, and yeah, and then like we talk about, uh, 1973 was this weird time where it was such a boom in black-led film and, and studios thinking that they can make money from it that they started turning to women in the lead, which was fairly unheard of at the time. And she was well, like especially perfect. in these violent action sort of mm-hmm. things, which, as you mentioned, Carolyn earlier, she's doing all of her own stunts. Mm. And she has this great quote where she watches herself do it. And everyone's like, is there anything like you're looking back at it now? You're surprised you did. And she's like, I am shocked that I did all of this not wearing a sports bra. Yeah. I have yeah. no idea how I managed that. <laughs> and it is impressive. Yeah, yes. I, and I also love there's a um, uh, there's a good Eddie Romero quote where he's like, uh, he liked working with Pam Grier partially because he's like, we'd be setting up a stunt woman jumping off a cliff and she'd come out of her trailer and be like, I could do that and just did it. And he's like, all right. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I don't remember much of that movie, but I remember Pam Grier would just stop every stunt woman and do what they were doing. Yeah. And that's the beauty of a non-union set. Yeah. Sure, you can jump off the cliff. Go ahead. All right. Well, let's get into our first movie where there's a bunch of cliff jumping and rolling and screaming and sweaty, sweaty human beings. So Black Mama, White Mama is a reworking of the prestige Sidney Poitier, Tony Curtis film, The Defiant Ones. But being about chained prisoners forced to work together is about where the similarity between these two movies end. And that's not a bad thing. Black Mama, White Mama is bananas, pairing together Pam Greer and Margaret Markov for the first time. And it certainly gives famed character actors Sid Haig, dogs, revolutionaries, and drug dealers all the scenery in the world to chew on as they hunt them through the Filipino jungle. Will they escape? Does it matter where there's a scene of them pretending to be nuns? <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> Carolyn, break this one's plot down for us, please. So we've got Lee and uh, Karen. So Lee is played by Pam Greer and Karen uh, is played by Mar- Margaret Markov, and um, they're respectively a sex worker and a revolutionary, and um, they end up in the same jail together in a women's prison, and um, they basically are put to work uh, in like a plantation there, and they're like chopping and cutting, and like you see the relationships kind of uh, evolve within the jail, and they end up escaping. So um, once they escape, they try to get to their respective, um, I guess, camps where Lee wants to go get this, uh, you know, cachet of money um, from her drug dealing boyfriend. And uh, Karen wants to go back to her revolutionary group. So they kind of butt heads and they're chained together, by the way. Um, and they uh, run around with uh, adventures trying to get to their their camps. And there's also um, Sid Haig. <laughs> who is this ruthless, like, uh, criminal and his camp. And um, there's also, I believe, uh, an, uh, another drug dealer played by uh, Vic Diaz. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, so, and Vic Diaz is, yeah, like, it's yes. the, two of the biggest, like, scenery-chewing villains <laughs> yes. you can imagine yeah. just trying to, like, outgross each other. The movie, yes. like, <laughs> briefly <laughs> just becomes obsessed with the villains, and you're like, where are yeah. the ladies? There's, like, yeah. three <laughs> scenes <laughs> of just the villains. <laughs> I'm actually kind of okay with mm-hmm. because it's that wild. I do have to say I want to see someone recut this movie with the Benny Hill theme song at <laughs> yes. points because I feel like it could really work. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, they're running around and then they finally, um, you know, get loose and then they kind of come together and become friends and, you know, um, 
uh, actually Pam is kind of a, a fat final girl in this film as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that not I didn't to spoil it, but I'm spoiling it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's great about these movies is they're both pretty readily available, which yeah. is which is really, really nice. Yeah. Um, this movie also just here's your content warning. This kind of is like the definition of exploitation. So you've got some sexual assault in mm-hmm. here. There's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of language. There's a lot of terrible things happening to to women. There's a torture scene. Um, so, yeah, that's just your your content warning before going into he is uh, electrocuting her boobs. Though, which yes. I'm like, what is even happening? Is this yeah. still not as bad as Ilsa? She will for no, the SS. No. But I will also say, as you guys were saying, this movie has a lot more wacky content than most exploitation. Like, it just turns into a silly comedy for, like, uh, 40 minutes in the middle, which is... I liked it. (laughs) Yeah, don't they they get dressed in... uh, They they capture Sid Haig, and then Mm. they they wear his outfit, and then he's running around in his underwear. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it's fun. In the Filipino forest, uh, Philippines, and it's... Yeah, it's... So this is one of several films that uh, they shot in the Philippines. This is AIP, we should mention. So good old Arkoff. Please go back and listen to our episode on uh, Vincent Price if you want to hear his fantastic way of making movies and his formula. Mm -hmm. It's super fun. Um, But this definitely falls into all of this, uh, into his formula. But of course, AIP's mandate was to make movies as cheaply as possible. This is the school where uh, Corman came out of it, uh, as well as shocking as possible. So that's what the exploitation, always taking certain elements. And one of the cheapest places in the world to film was, of course, the Philippines. Now, the movie never actually says they're in the Philippines. No. It's always the island. Yeah. Um, but but it is very clear they're in the Philippines. Uh, I do appreciate they're utilizing a lot of local actors. That's sure, nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I think that they're kind of pretending that it's South America, maybe. Like, they're yes. pretending it's, like, Spanish. Because I think that's how they get away with today being, like, uh, famously uh, a guy that they just got to play every race because he's, like, Armenian at the, at the time. <laughs> Yeah. they were like eh, who knows yeah who knows ambiguous yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's got that olive skin could be but yeah, and, I th- <laughs> and i think the filipino accent is like enough that you're like they're spanish it, it's fine yeah. <laughs> don't think about it the one that killed paris i got him right in the neck it was beautiful yeah i bet we killed six of them maybe more yeah i found a like a scholarly paper on um basically the exploitation of these films of the uh philippines and the people there and i'm like wow like that really went in deep you know Mm. went in deep because it is it's cheap labor it's cheap filming but then a lot of the actresses um the cast they were like subjected to like insects and typhoons Mm. and like storms and like Pam Greer almost died on this she ended up with like it seems like it was malaria or dysentery or something similar she doesn't know she just like had a fever of 105 they don't know and then she's like they froze my body to save my brain (laughs) it's like what the hell (laughs) like it sounds like they put her in a tub of ice until she was better which is like all right I mean it worked but yeah, and I don't to know. think this is like a remake of the Defiant ones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I also brow. love. Yeah, I love that it's like the Defiant Ones is obviously about like racial prejudice, and I love that this movie is just like, no, nah, they just don't like each other. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, there's not much racial co- even comes up. It's just like these two ladies kind of dislike each other. Hey, bitch, I'm talking to you. Look, you had your chance; you didn't want it. So get off my ass. I, you know, and I think it's that's a that's a weird kind of gender thing where, it, you know, I think because it's two women mm-hmm. and you just kind of assume that women are going to get along, that yeah. would be the focal point. 
Or maybe you just want to see, because that's so prevalent in these women in prison films, you just want to see these women butt heads and do a, have a cat fight. Yeah. And, you know, like you're kind of looking for that. So that's really an interesting thing because, yeah, I watched the Defiant ones and I'm like, wow, this is, um, you know, uh, uh, race relations 101. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. the time, it was groundbreaking, right? And also, But now you watch it and you're like, hitting yeah. over yeah, the head. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, these films were groundbreaking too because it's mm. like women in powerful roles. They're fighting. They're, you know, they're talking back. They're shooting guns. Yeah. <laughs> I just think what do we think the first lesbian shower scene was in a movie that wasn't an actual pornography? I mean, I <laughs> because this know. certainly has it. Yeah, I, I, but all these women in prison, there's always a lesbian yeah. uh, guard that's creeping. And actually, I, I read an interesting paper saying that this this movie is considered quite feminist partially because Pam Greer never lets the lesbian guard ever like lay a hand on her. She would rather be like tortured. And then they were saying that, mm -hmm. you know, that's that might be the dynamic essentially that she doesn't respect the other woman because she plays along with the guard mm. um which yeah that's yeah it's, it's such a weird intro to the film because the tone shifts so wildly after they get out of prison and so from <laughs> yeah. my understanding eddie romero who's the director really didn't want any of the skis any mm. of the like the lesbian stuff the nude women any of that like he really didn't want that kind of stuff in the film and but he knew that was like part of the checkbox yeah. of our cop of like you gotta have this it's a women in prison so he puts it all he front loads all mm. of it so he just gets it all out of the way all the tropes and then once they're on the run he makes the movie he actually wanted to make yeah. which is super wacky and i mean i think he makes interesting dynamics like the fact that there's there's not one but two lesbian prison guards and it seems more like that the dynamic is that the one is kind of the dom who lets the other one do creepy stuff and then like beats <laughs> up on her and that's yeah. what they're into more than the one being like a messy uh, it's very weird but yeah I, and i mean i love I, reading about eddie romero is very fascinating and i think i've only scratched the surface because it's like he's he's like one of the founders of the Philippines film industry and is a classy director who it just seems like when there was exploitation happening he's like sure <laughs> like yeah. I'll, I'll take the money and do it and it seems like he liked to make horror movies and yeah he, he did these as like a way to kind of continue but he has a career both before the exploitation boom and after that is like well respected you know and his family involved in politics so he mm. was like very highfalutin yeah. as well like he was very respected yeah very this interesting. is uh this is like co-produced by john ashley who starred in some of his movies and i think is the guy that kind of got aip across and yeah he said that like i was just reading an interview where john ashley was talking about how he had a gym which was quite fancy at the time and but it was gifted to him by imelda marcos so it's like yeah oh, they were obviously <laughs> very uh very in and yeah yeah it was it was interesting it's, it must be it was such a strange dynamic but yeah it seems like the government was into this uh era as well supporting it i can see that well i mean again it's a lot of work for locals they were using mm. they had brought over some of their own people but they also trained a lot of local crews to make their own films there and kind of it like uh, canada like australia like anywhere with a smaller kind of scene it helps sort of kickstart their film yeah industry. and if you look at we are like we were talking about vic diaz if you look it, it continues for quite a while too like it, he's in like philippines based exploitation movies through like the 90s and 2000s so as much as there's not the big boom that there is at the start of the 70s that uh, Firecracker is one that recently came out that's like a pornographic kung fu movie, basically, that has been re-released. It's great. I highly recommend it. A lot of, it's, it's a real kung fu artist who, uh, but her clothes just keep getting ripped off. Uh, but but uh, it's a great film. But he's in that, and that's like 1981. So yeah, th this... 
it, it, it established an industry that continued at some level or another. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of a B-movie hierarchy, which I have to say until I started like researching 1973, I didn't realize there was one within the performers who did it, mm. specifically the women. And women in prison films were considered like the classiest thing you could do as a woman. Like, because you're not, you're doing a bit of softcore porn, but it's not that much. You're usually getting to kick some ass, things like that. So I, and uh, when, when we were looking at Lady Snowblood, which we'll talk about on the TV show, uh, Meiko Kaji was the same thing. She started out doing like Yakuza pictures and yeah. like angry young schoolgirls, and then moved into women in prison and then Lady Snowblood. So it's, there's a weird prestige that's associated with this kind of film in the B-movie realm. I mean, it's a good role for women, right? You got to think of what women were playing in other movies. It's well, meaty. It's a, so demure and like, you know, you have to be like a certain way, like the love interest or woman in peril. And I think, you know, just going back to the the, the wardens, the prison wardens, mm. like that that's a meaty role in itself to sure. play someone who's horrible and, <laughs> you know, abusive. And <laughs> I mean, you're, you're beating up on other women. So that's, you know, I mean, they're not without their problems, but it is, it's, it's, I think it's a great way for women to kind of explore being villains because, mm -hmm. you know, women always have to be the savior or caregivers or whatever. So this or is the victim, yeah. the victim. Yeah. So it's nice to see them actually getting into these roles and, and like showing that we women are fallible and, and, and flawed and angry and want to kick ass too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about Jonathan Demi because uh, he is considered like one of the, I, I guess, the Picasso of the women in sure. prison movies. Yes. Um, and this is his first story by credit for any of it. This mm -hmm. and Caged Heat would come two years later, which is kind of considered his masterpiece of that genre. Yeah, and I think I, I think a lot of people consider it the best, partially because I think in the same way as this movie, it's mostly a prison escape movie. It is not not mostly a torture exploitation movie it's got a fun escape but yeah apparently he sold this one for five hundred dollars and at the time it was called chains of hate which is a good <laughs> it's got a lot of good alternate titles in, in the uk it was called hot hard and mean which i also think is a, a pretty <laughs> did, pretty okay. great title <laughs> did you see the tagline for this which i love because it's totally irrelevant it's chicks in chains dot 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 and nothing in common but the hunger of a thousand nights without a man <laughs> wow <laughs> like rolls off the say, tongue the, that the, one. The poster that's on my screen right now says they're choking a guy out and it says where they come from this is fun <laughs> which I mean, also doesn't quite make sense but yeah I, Jonathan Demi's an interesting figure and I mean he's like John Sayles where there was all these guys and actually you know even the the next writers we'll talk about they were just selling all these pitches that's that's kind of the weird thing everybody said you were actually paid pretty well at the time to just sell <laughs> sell script and script and script but you know none of them got produced or Arkoff did something weird with it or whatever so yeah it's hard to know how much of this is demi uh but at the time yeah he, he made quite a few aip movies i think before he he moved on to be a classier director it really took till the 80s i think before he was doing anything we consider a jonathan demi movie particularly oh one last little thing cam that i want to bring up um, before we move on is uh you brought up when we were talking about the hunger that it's not actually about aids because aids came later oh, it's sure. one of those fallacies we have looking back at history I was like, oh, Karen is Patty Hearst. That's what's happening mm. here. No, Patty Hearst is the following year. Patty <laughs> yes. Hearst is 74. So this is just like, <laughs> yeah, which I, I thought that was really interesting. 
Because, like, blonde woman joining revolutionary. She sure. comes from a rich family. Possibly there's some Stockholm syndrome. Nope, not Patty Hearst. I mean, yeah, that's it's. Uh, we find that out more and more that there's just these coincidences. And maybe for all we know that there was a famous woman like Patty Hearst before Patty Hearst. And if you cared about it, it was there. Yeah, it's a very, <laughs> very confusing cinema history. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on. Is the answer. It, exactly. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to be looking at, I think it's considered one of the most prestigious performances in a black exploitation movie. We're going to be talking about William Marshall and Scream, Blackula Scream. That's coming up after the break. Pam Greer's reputation saw her as one of cinema's ultimate tough gals. So who would make a worthy foe? How about 6'5", velvet-voiced William Marshall, a veteran actor known for his betrayal of Othello, including a jazz version that found him opposite Jerry Lee Lewis as Iago. Marshall's Memoalde slash Blackula is considered one of the best of the horror-inspired exploitation movies, as is its sequel, Scream Blackula Scream. But what's so great about the pairing of these two is that although Pam's Lisa Fortier is there to rid the world world of Blackula, it becomes so much more than that, given the unique take on the vampire mythos. Let's get into it. Cam, good luck with the, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> the plot no, no. summary I mean, here. It's not that bad. Yeah, there's basically two strands to the plot. Uh, what kicks off the plot of Scream, Blackula, Scream does not actually involve him at all. Uh, there's essentially this... Uh, battle for control of a like voodoo group uh, where the Mama Loa has died and now it's uh, up to a vote actually it's not even like anyone's trying to take control uh, but Willis who uh, I believe is her son uh, wants he believes he's owed it uh, everyone in the group is like no we vote uh, and uh, Pam Greer was taken in she was adopted uh, by the head of the the I don't know. I don't want to say voodoo cult. It's just a voodoo group. They seem pretty chill. They seem to just do totally. voodoo as a religion, really. And they just want to hang out and do their thing. Yeah. And Richard Lawson is playing like the greatest vain, like yeah. entitled spoiled boy asshole. It's real oh, good. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. having a great time. They do call it a cult, though. I don't yeah, know okay, why they're okay, calling yeah. it a cult. Because okay. they are really chill. They're just like, yeah. oh, let's just do our thing. It, it seems like, <laughs> honestly, yeah, it seems like, honestly, they're probably practicing it just just basic religiously. They're not even using the magic particularly. Uh, but yeah, she she is known to be very powerful with voodoo and everybody is obviously going to vote for her so uh willis freaks out leaves uh he he contacts you know a local weirdo who tells him that he can do this ritual over the bones of a question mark figure and it ends up being uh <laughs> yes uh the previously uh, killed blackula has returned uh and willis thinks he'll, he'll be able to control him uh but he won't he uh, immediately turns willis into a vampire makes him kind of his renfield and they live in a big old mansion you know that you like a creaky old mansion so there's all sorts of mansion antics where basically people get picked off but along the way uh he runs into uh Pam Greer, and suddenly he is very taken by Pam Greer, uh, and Pam Greer also, you know, she like is very interested in African art and stuff like that, and uh, it, it's kind of slowly comes out that you re he realizes that she is so powerful in voodoo that she can probably rid him of the curse that Dracula gave him. If you didn't know, he is a vampire because uh, he came to Dracula asking him to stop the slave trade, uh, and Dracula was a jerk and was like, no, you're a vampire. <laughs> fire now <laughs> and uh cursed him uh so he he doesn't want to be a vampire either uh and he also uh, maybe he's a little attracted to pam greer too maybe he's kind of 
would love it there. Uh, She looks a lot like his wife from the first movie, right? That's part of it. Yes. Uh, And along the way as well, uh, Pam Greer's uh, boyfriend, uh, hanger on, (laughs) a guy that likes her, I guess. Uh, It used to be a cop, uh, and he gets involved in the investigation of all these mysterious killings that are happening where people are bitten. Um, And yeah, now there's like a vampire hive (laughs) run by, uh, yeah, run by Black Hill as well. So uh, it all comes to a head in in the uh, evil dark house, you know, one of those. I hadn't seen the original. I've actually, weirdly, I saw Scream, Blackula, Scream first, and then I had to go back and watch Blackula. And I didn't realize the the story behind it is that he's actually a tragic figure, yeah. which Dracula isn't, even though it's still very sexy. I love vampire, but I didn't know the the fact that he's that that's a total departure. Totally. And, and I think that he has this interesting thing where he is like, he's still the villain. He's still Dracula. He's still fighting <laughs> people. But I, I think especially because he is motivated by the slave trade, he's this kind of black power person because he's this very regal person who is disgusted by people who do not you know, comport themselves well. Uh, he, he beats up some pimps here and he's like, you may, you've made your sister a slave and you're slaves too. And you're like, yes, yeah. <laughs> get, get him. <laughs> yeah. So it's weird because he's, he's bad, but he's, and, and here actually, I, I think that they do, it's interesting because I will talk about it. I think a lot of the creators of the original kind of hate the sequel, but I think that they do a wonderful job of, that making it tragic again at the end like he he is bad but he can't control being bad like he becomes the villain out of his own control and it's very sad and don't we all wish that for our bad boys i can change him i can change him i just need the perfect voodoo magic spell (laughs) carolyn what was your approach to this one how did you first get into this you know horror noir um Ah, yes. That documentary, um, you know, and uh, robin armines coleman the the um, author of the original book from the that they made into a documentary so uh reading that and just like in my horror you know exploration Mm -hmm. as i i grew as a writer um but i didn't really know about blackula until more recently like i would say within the last like five to ten years so that was like a new thing for me and what kind of blew my mind is in blackula i think gordon gordon pinsett's in it um yeah he plays like a, a cop um, that's hmm. investigating the whole thing. And I'm like, wait, what? Is Canadian connection? <laughs> so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and I like that um, he is this tragic figure because he's been made by like this white enslaver, right? Mm. He's been made into this creature and like it's a curse. And, you know, it's just really interesting how it kind of parallels to like, say, Ganja and Hess, where mm-hmm. that's also another curse. And, and that's a tragic figure as well. And there's like, um, you know, black romance involved. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very for a black exploitation film. Both of them, they're it's very heady, and it's you, you can delve into it. Um, and also, it's what I love, um, especially with Scream, Blackula Scream, mm-hmm. is you showing that a the voodoo community is as we were saying before, really chill. It's a religion. Yeah. They're doing their thing. It's mm-hmm. nothing horrific they're not chopping up animals or whatever although that is a part of it you know but um and it just shows that black people have they know about their culture Mm -hmm. and um especially the scene where um blackula comes to uh this this party where lisa's boyfriend is showing all the african art and jewelry and he's going to donate it to the museum and so then they start talking to Blackula and 
just seeing everybody dressed to the nines and dancing and just looking like so beautiful and mm. and like it's sad to say like upper middle class like, yeah yeah it's just really cool you know it's, it's, it's true it's cool yeah. And I agree that there's that connection to Ganja and Hess here, where it's like they're it's mostly intellectuals, it's mostly, and I think you you see that more and more in black exploitation. Something like JD's Revenge is all about like a, an intellectual yes. being warped into a pimp, yes. you know. But yeah, it's it's cool, and I think that there's all the like the many more connections. Again, people who are like, ah, this is rewritten to hell. I'm like, it's very. You know, it's very moving that he's, yeah, talk, all this talk about African art, I think, is very interesting. And then the fact that his primary thing, even beyond ridding himself of, of being a vampire, is he wants to go back to Africa, which is, like, such a part of the movement at the time, the, like, back to Africa movement, that it's like, yeah, this is, <laughs> it's it's surprisingly heady. And, yeah, I would never think, I guess I also forgot that, like, it's obviously a terrible title. Calling something Blackula is terrible. <laughs> yeah. But then it, that's addressed in the movie. Like, he, yeah, yeah he's Mama Walde, and, and Dracula called him Blackula. And then, yeah, the, like, especially tragic moment in this movie is when he, like, identifies as Blackula. He goes, like, mm -hmm. I am Blackula when he's turned completely evil. And you're like, yeah, that is, like, it is, like, a weird slave name slash real name situation. Yeah. <gasps> Mama Walde. This is a controversial film and series as well. Like the, specifically these two. I mean, there's also like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Black, and there's oh, yeah. Abby, which Terrible. is the Exorcist. Yeah, taking, uh, <laughs> yeah, Blackenstein. Blackenstein is considered the worst of mm -hmm. them, apparently. From and what also, I again, a terrible Carolyn's name. Shaking your head that so that one, at least, yeah. like, it's again not. Yeah, I don't know. It's very weird. I find that the all of the most of the horror, maybe JD's Revenge has a little, like people thought was a little classy, but like it's very interesting how that whole part is written off even though i do think quite a bit of it's good i think abby is is pretty good i think like the house on skull mountain is pretty good but, i love that yeah. movie so much yeah. I, love like, that I, movie. I i explored yeah. them and i was like these are pretty good i don't know yeah. why they're kind of but i think it's the stupid titles a lot of it to be honest yeah. so a lot of the people who've talked about it and who've written about it were of course white men who yeah. were seeing that sure. in context that they shouldn't have been seeing it in so the scream blackula scream won the golden turkey award oh, yeah, of one of like sure. the worst movies made and uh, however, it was written by uh, two authors, Michael uh, Medved and Harry Medved, and they admit freely that they chose it as much for the rowdy crowd at the late night Skid Row Theater they saw it at as to what was going on. Yeah. So they're judging the audience. They're judging who this is for. I will also and, say that I yeah. think the Medveds 100% are like, we chose good movies and called them bad movies to piss people off. <laughs> like the Golden Turkey Awards are, I think that they're, they admit more than the Razzies that it's still like, we're just pushing your buttons. Because I feel like some of those Golden Turkey books have like a, a an, a, like, Casablanca on the cover or something, yeah. and you're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's weird. It is weird. And it's uh it's interesting that this hasn't and I, I I but I think again, this is where I'm like I'm surprised that there was so much care taken in these films. And I think once again, it's also like when it's a crummy exploitation movie and you have like a performer in it who like William Marshall 
who commands some respect he's allowed to rewrite stuff you know like Mm -hmm. if he's like i don't like this you're like sure whatever like i I don't think arkov cares (laughs) like rewrite it however you want uh well there's a great interview with joan torres um i i I don't know if raymond coning is with us anymore because i have wasn't able to find any interviews with him whatsoever but joan torres still talks about this she's sometimes miscredited as john torres Mm. but i think that's people just misreading her name um (laughs) but she specifically talks about um when they went in to write this they actually did a ton of research on like what voodoo was and like the slave trade and how they could make this work and they um when they submitted the idea to arkov uh they were like we love this but we need you to black up the language mm. meaning like make mm-hmm. it more jive talky so they actually called in a friend of theirs who was a very respected uh, artist in the community named wallace sides who if you look up his um he did the art for the the front of the script when they submitted it and it's yeah, real cool, it's really cool. go look this oh, up awesome. um but he rewrote a bunch of the dialogue and and they paid him and they also pushed to get him screen credit and he didn't get it for the first one they wouldn't give him screen credit for the first one but he did get screen credit for the second one for additional dialogue by which is awesome that they pushed for that because mm. they could have just been like come in do this and you know mm-hmm. look look we did it and they they didn't do that it was it was very important for them they get this stuff right and they treat it with respect which i appreciate well yeah, yeah i mean that's pretty rare i mean even these days uh, you still see <laughs> like on twitter people are like well there's no people of color in the writer's room mm-hmm. nobody's asking us you know so i mean for for the time that's pretty progressive yeah um barring them actually have black people <laughs> write scripts yeah, yeah. <laughs> well and it's one of those yeah. things too that uh, like yeah. i kind of feel bad for screenwriters when they're trying to write something progressive mm-hmm. and you end up in this area where that it's taken out of your hands so the first the first victims in the uh in blackula are a gay couple an interracial gay couple yeah. uh and uh the portrayal of them now is not seen as charitable <laughs> it is yeah. it's pretty camp and pretty like oh boy but the writers were deliberately trying to add in characters you didn't see on film they mm. wanted to they're like we had a lot of uh friends who were interracial they were of different um different sexual orientations and we wanted to have that in a movie because you didn't see it mm-hmm. so it's just unfortunate that that was interpreted in that way yeah yeah and i another great thing i read about aip that because again aip mostly did not work with black directors there wasn't a ton of black directors on their stable and, and it was interesting to read about that Somebody like uh, Jack Hill, I think, was talking about it. And he's like, it, it was absolutely embarrassing. <laughs> he's like, as a bunch of white people making these movies, you were embarrassed. And he said that like Time Magazine wrote about it and they managed to convince AIP to try to get them more black technicians because they were just like, yeah. So it's interesting because you're like, you think you're like, well, it was a different time. And he's like, no, <laughs> it was literally embarrassing on set to be a bunch of white people making these movies. <laughs> and you're like, oh, OK, that's cool. that I guess, yeah, you, you guys were like, you understood. <laughs> you know? And wasn't there uh, the scene, I believe it was in Blackula, where they wanted um, black and white dancers to be dancing intermingled. Mm. And yep. somebody was saying, no, we want them separate. You know, like, I guess that's the fight they had. Yeah, it's trying to make it progressive, but then there's uh... yeah, it's it's weird, and I mean you can also <laughs> yeah appreciate that I like they're trying to get away with a lot, so I think that sometimes yeah sometimes they probably pushed. And probably that's the weird thing that Arkov knows is like, if you go this far, it's not going to play in a drive-in in Georgia. But if you, you know, stop at this line, you can get away with it. And whether that's progress or not is kind of, I guess, what's up for debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, Cam, this was um, not exactly what the fil- what the writers originally intended. So they actually wanted to write about um, Memowalde as Blackula uh, living with his uh, partner from the first movie, the two of them escape, and 
they have a baby and the movie was going to be about the son of Dracula and he or son of Blackula and he gets called to go deal with uh, voodoo in Haiti and the final battle is between the son of Blackula and a bunch of zombies which, which I was amazing. like oh that sounds <laughs> yeah. real fun yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd watch the crap out of that so I don't know how that like this I want to be clear Scream Blackula Scream is a lot of fun and it despite what the creators think about it I think it, it comes off as what it should come off yeah. as um, but that other version sounds so cool and I want yeah, to see it I know. and I will also say that I'm kind of I was a little sad that uh, Joan Torres was so disappointed with the director uh, Bob Kelgen because I think it's kind of directed cool I think that there's some cool sequences especially when there's like point of view sequences from Mama Walde but you can't see him in mirrors, which I'm like, that's a really good trick. That kind of rules. And some of the old Dark Host stuff. And I actually like, I mean, I love apparently uh, one of Arkov's only <laughs> things that he comes down with is uh, black people want to see vampires kill cops. So <laughs> the ending <laughs> is this vampires versus cops, which I'm like, I mean, who among us does not want to see that? Uh, but yeah, I think that end sequence is pretty cool. Like there's a lot of action going on. It's uh, it's kind of uh, kind of awesome. And I know that, yeah, the director was somebody that Apparently Gene Siskel loved because he's like, finally, Blackula gets the Count Yorga treatment, which is like this guy's <laughs> other movie. And you're like, yeah, I, not a good movie, but uh, apparently Siskel <laughs> loved it. I don't know. <laughs> Who knew? Well, Ebert liked this, too. And he specifically praised the um, William Marshall performance mm. as being akin to um, Christopher Lee or uh, Vincent Price doing a mm -hmm. same kind of thing. However, and this is what I'm curious about, Carolyn, let me know what you think. He criticized it because he's like, I felt they should have gone more into the gothic hammer horror aspect for more effectiveness. What do you think about that? Uh, no, because, you know, that's that that is hammer. That's yeah. that thing. And then this is I don't know. I just think it's very specific for the time, you know? Yeah, no, it, that wouldn't have worked at all. Like, I just think and it's weird because even though Blackula sticks out like a sore thumb, Mm. He he commands this respect from everybody immediately, right? Sure. So and so that, sexy. It's yeah. And, and you, you yeah. saying Christopher Lee, I, I really can equate those two. Like they both command this respect and there's this awe to, to the character that I don't I, yeah, I I would not want to see the hammer treatment. I love hammer films. Mm. Don't get me wrong. They're they're my jam. And like sometimes, you know, I want to watch something like that on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon because it just makes me feel like when I was a kid sure. and I found it on TV. I guess because it's so um it's it it's so involved with the black culture mm. that to make it gothic would just kind of take away from that. Like it's just even yeah. though the writers and the well, I know William Crane did, did the first one, but like it just it gives such power to black culture that no, I, I think it's perfect the way it is. Totally. And William Marshall is just such an interesting actor that I don't think we kind of talk about his career enough. Uh, Carolyn, do you know much about William Marshall? No, I don't really know. I know that he was like a stage actor and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, obviously in the Blackula films. Um, but I, I, I don't really know too, too much about him. So... He's a, uh, the stuff that I dug up a little, and Becky, you can probably help me with this. A, a very fascinating thing that I loved that I think is kind of the Pam Greer thing too, is apparently it took him a long time to transition from stage to screen because no one would cast him in subservient roles, essentially. Because he, 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 he was too fancy. And it's just the way he <laughs> yeah. talks. It's like, this guy cannot be your butler. This no. guy is fancier <laughs> than you are. Which, well, he uh, did yeah. play Frederick Douglass in one of the first stage versions of, of that story on film, which 
which makes sense because that was also mm. a character who had like a lot of regalness to it. I so totally yeah, totally see that. Totally see that. Yeah. I will also say that for me, it's funny to go back and I did not realize it was the same guy, but immediately it clicked is he's the king of cartoons on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yes, he is. Like he's the guy that comes what? and is dressed as a king. There's there's one different actor, but he's mostly for most of the seasons the king of cartoons, uh, which is pretty great. Uh, so like he was a part of my childhood. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, if you could see my face. <laughs> yeah, right now, no, you'll wait, have to wait, look it up what? and you'll be delighted because he he looks pretty much the same. But yeah, I, it's very fascinating because I also don't think like I think it's easy to be like, oh no, well his career he's probably super defined by this movie, but not really because like the next year he won an Emmy. He still continued to play these big roles. Uh, the thing that I thought was very interesting and like an interesting link to like the the start of the black exploitation genre is he started starred in the original adaptation of Chester Himes novels that would go on to be Cotton Comes to Harlem and it was a TV show called uh, Harlem Detective in 1953, but it got canceled because he was uh, called out. He was blacklisted for being uh, a communist. So like he also is a guy who like survived the blacklist. Um, but what's so impressive impressive yeah. about that is that he just said, "Well, fuck it." that I'm going to go back to the stage and yeah. play Othello, which is what I'm known it, for. It, it, so like, yeah, it, did, it like, didn't yeah. ruin him. He played Othello all over Europe uh, and just came back and then had a second win. But yeah, I'm, and obviously it's very sad because like mid-50s TV, you're not going to find any of it. But apparently there was 12 episodes of this Harlem detective that is, yeah, Coffinetti and all, all those characters. And it's like, damn, that would be very cool to see. I actually found an article from the New York Times in the like in the 50s announcing mm. it, referring to its all Negro cast, because, of course, it did. Yeah. But but they were actually really praising of like, this is a point of view we have not seen before. And we have high hopes for this show. Sure. And it was just like, wow, OK. I mean, that's it's wild to think because, yeah, I, I always forget that those Chester Himes novels, because all the adaptations are, you know, 70s and onward. You think of them in the 70s. But, yeah, those are 50s, like hard detective novels it would have been very cool to see them in that era and thinking of him because actually it's interesting uh raymond saint Jacques, who played in cotton comes to harlem was considered first for uh, the role of mama walde so it's like oh i know who you would have played because it's like the same dude yeah, i get it i get it <laughs> I mean, Pam Greer, we haven't really talked about her much so far in this, even though like she she does quite a bit. But this is also a gentler role for her. A lot of what she's doing is, you know, she does a lot of the, the voodoo elements of it. She's not kicking as much ass. It's much more of an intellectual thing. But, uh, Carolyn, you were reading a book kind of talking about her as an icon, um, as a diva, I believe they mm -hmm. call her of the screen. There's a book by Mia Mass called Divas on Screen, and she looks at a handful of Black um, actresses and um uh, she talks about Dorothy Dandridge, Hall Halle Berry, and she has a, a chapter on Pam Greer. And it's really fascinating. She breaks it down um, with the psychology. Um, she comes with receipts. <laughs> she <laughs> breaks down Pam Greer's career, and it's really, really interesting. And she calls her, um, she's got phallic charisma because... Mm. Um, she's basically, and she actually says it in the chapter, she's ballsy, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she plays like really feminine and she's also got that masculine trait of like, you know, wanting to come in and kick ass and, and, and being unafraid, um, fearlessly going into these roles and playing these characters that are fearless. So I highly recommend grabbing a copy of this book. I, I actually have um physical and a digital copy. <laughs> I love it so much. But um yeah, it's really fascinating and it talks about her roles and her um like her role in propelling black exploitation into popular culture and and like how she is 
she's just so iconic. You know, it's just a really fascinating read. Did I mention already that Pam Greer apparently has a podcast series come out coming out where she, I think this fall, where she goes through movie by movie and is going to be talking about, like, it's a tell-all of, like, every single film? Mm-hmm. Can't yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah. I am so looking forward <laughs> to it. Oh, man. Yeah, because this is just such a different role for her. It's so demure like the whole film is demure and classy i I I totally do think that interestingly like i I don't know not everybody's gonna love even if you line up coffee black mama white mama and and scream black yellow scream i think you'll have a favorite and probably some of them you won't like but i do think it is fascinating to see uh how pam greer plays these different characters they are very each one of them is a very different character which is like a great tribute to her acting especially at such a young age she's just a little baby in these movies too she's a kid yeah yeah (laughs) i love it and it's i mean this is really just the start of her gearing up like she does like it's like a two three year period where like she does a lot of the hits where you're like man how did you knock out that many movies that are that iconic and that incredible the fact that she's still making shows and she's managed to find her way into things even though we're going to be talking about movies like Jawbreaker later on where mm-hmm. like it's she's definitely not given enough to do in that movie but she's still great yeah. <laughs> you know she shows up um so it and it's always such a delight when she shows up and it's like Pam Greer yeah. she's here let's go yeah. what about Ghosts of Mars oh true <laughs> yes. Yes. yes yes I actually tried watching it with my boyfriend he's like I've seen enough and I'm like but it's Ghosts of Mars <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is John it. Carpenter's yeah, Ghosts of Mars that that show some respect yes. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, and I love she's got on her docket she has untitled pet cemetery project where I'm like, yes, yes, tell me what it is. <laughs> I just want to see her fuck up a dead cat. Yeah, Let's go. Exactly. Oh exactly. You know what's funny? I'm curious because she's such an animal lover. She's a huge mm. animal lover. She's like a horse whisperer, apparently. Uh, she has like wow. horses. She's got a She loves a cowboy hat, so I'm glad to hear that because yeah. yeah. No, she's very much a cowgirl. Okay. So I'm wow. curious to see what happens if if that is indeed like dead animals yeah back. <laughs> i don't know uh, i mean i'm sure she's the uh she's got to be the dead is better person right she's yeah. got to be the uh don't put things in the pet cemetery yeah exactly. that's what i would cast her as and well she just doesn't want to be buried in a pet cemetery yeah, <laughs> i get it <laughs> all right thank you ramones all right and on that note we will end this episode cameron maitland thank you once again for joining uh, us thank you i also want to shout out my favorite pam greer thing uh, a friend of mine went through cancer and she pointed out that pam greer pam greer got cancer stage four cancer in the 80s and, wow. and like fought it and kind of still is considered in remission to this day uh, so she and she had 18 months to live and she's been living for decades uh, so mm-hmm. she so she says that the wonderful thing is when you're miserable about your cancer treatment you can just be like I gotta be like Pam Greer and like yeah. what, what a great person to hold in your heart exactly oh that's no lovely kidding. Uh, Carolyn Morissette, thank you so much for joining us once again, because I know you're very busy because you have a new position. <laughs> yeah, the going going hard for Fantasia, programming for Fantasia and Bits. So, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I love coming back to talk to you both. And ah, it's so much fun. Thank you so much for having me back. <laughs> we have fun talking yeah, to you. Yeah, it's so nice and easy. <laughs> and you can join us in two weeks where... We've been teasing it since the beginning of the season. We're looking at 70s porn through the Devil and Miss Jones and Wakefield Pool's Bible! Exclamation point. That's coming up in two weeks with Will Sloan and Justin DeClue. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. 
Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Cameron Maitland and Carolyn Morissette as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.